Welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bounds. On today's programme, we're reviewing Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, the American writer-director's new sort of coming-of-age tale set in the San Fernando Valley. Licorice Pizza follows Alana Kane and Gary Valentine navigating young romance in the heady summer heat of 1970s California. Played by Alana Heim and Cooper Hoffman, both leads are fresh to the silver screen, and the cast is boosted by some rollicking cameos from Tom Waits, Bradley Cooper and Sean Penn. Underpinned by a soundtrack combining original music from Johnny Greenwood with 70s classics from the likes of David Bowie and The Doors, the film winds a gentle story of young love with riotous escapades throughout Los Angeles. Hijinks include the creation of a waterbed business, motorcycle stunts and a truck careering through the back streets of the city during the height of the OPEC oil crisis. So let's hear a bit of the trailer to give us a flavour. I think it's weird to hang out with Gary and his friends all the time. <laughs> I think it's weird that I hang out with Gary and his 15-year-old friends all the time. The reception to Licorice Pizza has widely commended the whimsical meandering of the plot with the performances in yet another critical triumph for Paul Thomas Anderson. But here to find out whether they are in agreement with the majority are the film critics Simran Hans and Jason Solomon. Welcome both to the programme. Lovely to lovely to have you slightly remotely at the beginning of this new year. But Jason, we've just heard a, a little bit of the trailer, a little clip there, which puts us sort of fairly and squarely with that Bowie soundtrack and all the rest of it in 1973. How does Paul Thomas Anderson build the sort of hyper nostalgic vibe uh, of Licorice Pizza? Yeah, what a what a start to the new year, Licorice Pizza. Here's a little <laughs> slice of California sunshine as we sit slightly locked down in the grey of London. He does that. He does it with a, a consummate ease. There is no doubt he's a masterful filmmaker. His elegance in sequences is just breathtaking sometimes. You know, if you're a cinephile, a film fan, you sit there and just the, the sheer elegance of the execution brings a smile to your lips sometimes. You just watch and gasp at how he's made a sequence that drifts along with sun in the hair and you know running through the streets and there's a teenage fair with Chico Hamilton playing on the soundtrack and it all comes together just as the final note of Buddy Collette's saxophone finishes so does the sequence and you think gosh he's done it again he did he does it in the opening sequence of Boogie Nights he does it in Phantom Thread it's all so perfect and elegant and yet it feels loosey-goosey and greasy like a licorice pizza and you, you just think well how how have you captured this air of nostalgia this air of uh, lightness of touch that you've got here. And it, it's brilliant because what happens is underneath it is a real emotional heft and a pain of growth. There's also a sort of uh, a lightness that I mentioned there, that touch, that California sunshine. But underneath it, there are some real emotions going on, some real career and life decisions for, the, for our leads, Alana and Gary, that's going on. So all in all, he does it by this this strange combination. I think the title Licorice Pizza refers to a record shop, but it also refers to a sort of bitter sweetness, uh, two ingredients that don't really go together yet somehow congeal into this pie. Beautifully put, Jason. I feel like I'm back in 1973 and uh, uh, and I've got my Brian Wilson haircut on and I'm ready. I'm ready to rock. I'm ready to kind of uh, to, to to make like a man. Simran, can you? Uh, Jason was sort of waxing lyrical there about the the sort of 
the effortless elements uh, of this latest uh, uh, venture from Paul Thomas Anderson. How did that sit with you? Can you see any of the, 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 the pieces? Can you see any of the cracks in this jigsaw puzzle? Does it seem like very much of a, of a piece to you? Well, one thing that I really like about this movie is the way it's structured because it, it's meandering and it's loose and it kind of drifts all over the place. But I feel like the sort of vignettes and the scenes that we have, you kind of mentioned them earlier, Rob, how you've got the motorcycle incident, the starting of a waterbed company, um, the, the truck sequence, all of these little moments, they feel like stories and anecdotes and memories that have been told and recounted many times. And there's a sort of blurring between what really happened and what has been passed down as lore and legend. And I think that's really fun as a way to kind of move through the narrative. Um, I really love that aspect of the film. And yeah, we should say that we sort of set this up in the introduction, um, Simran and Jason, but this is a loose love story that, you know, that together for a lot of the film, Alana and Gary, and they kind of, they, they sort of wash in and out like a tide, don't they? They're sort of together. And then she's sort of running off. As he pursues her, he's 15. She's in her early 20s. She's appalled and attracted by his confidence and his kind of childishness in his age but kind of if not in his vibe how believable is that kind of is that love story the age difference and his and Cooper Hoffman as Gary Valentine excellently named how believable is he as this kind of child actor turned kind of entrepreneur Simran well Rob you want to get into the age gap discourse straight away let's let's go there (laughs) we're three Um... minutes in and we're going there (laughs) I think that this is a movie about crushes and anybody who sort of remembers their teenage years has probably had a crush, been a crush, probably both. And so what I think is worth kind of stating up top is that this is not really about a relationship between somebody who is 15 and somebody else who is 25, but the sort of weird electric charge between two people who kind of like each other, kind of get each other, um, but aren't together and have a kind of formative impact on each other's lives. I think the crush is totally believable. I think Gary, you have to remember, is a salesman. He's a pitch guy. And in the opening scene, he's kind of pitching himself to Alana as a date. And she's sort of a bit sceptical and ultimately is won over by that because he's very charming. And then as the film kind of progresses, we learn that this is what he's good at. This is his special skill. Um, But I definitely believe that she'd be seduced by the lifestyle and the charisma and the kind of doors that he opens for her. I also believe that she's not stupid and that she doesn't want to go out with a 15-year-old because she's an adult, but she's also so kind of confused and drifting she's a dabbler you know because she dabbles in local politics she dabbles in taking photographs she dabbles in sales she's kind of not got a fixed path she doesn't know exactly what she's doing and so somebody with a bit more direction and a little bit more oomph um definitely would be seductive to a character like that I think yes I think it's a good point Simon it's not about the age gap it's about the fantasy of this and it's it's you're absolutely right I love that idea that it's a film about crushes it's also a place where like the kids act like grown-ups and the grown-ups act like children. I'm thinking of Bradley Cooper. I'm thinking of Sean Penn. Um, <laughs> these kind of guys who, who've gone nuts, you know, with kind of some sort of power or they're clinging onto it or whatever. 
I think you can excuse the age gap if you love yeah. the movie. If the yeah. age gap bothers you, then you can absolutely take the movie apart. If you love the movie and the storytelling and all of that, then you can absolutely say, well, of course, it's about a crush and of course it's fine. But then you could also flip it and all the, all the transgressive age gap movies that we've had before that are often sort of seen in a bad light now. And I'm thinking in the 70s, let's go Manhattan and let's go Taxi Driver. We are talking about something that's very dangerous still. And so will make people feel queasy as if they've eaten too much pizza, licorice pizza. But it's unconsummated, you know. There's a wonderful scene where the Paul McCartney and Wings song plays where they sort of lie on the waterbed and they're sort of not touching, but they're just keenly aware of each other's bodies and um, nothing happens. Yes, it doesn't happen. So it played with me all the way through. I have to say, I found it creepy. And they do refer to it, as does Woody Allen in Manhattan, refer to going out with Tracy. And, and, and I do find that slightly odd. And that one sort of goes into a sexual element where we see that. So the flipping of it, I think, and making it a, a woman who has the, the sort of agency in this has does seem to excuse the movie a little bit more from the age gap discourse. But there is an age gap discourse going on around this movie that that is attached to it. But people are sort of saying, well, you know what? It's such a nice movie. It doesn't really matter. And I, I'm sort of there with that, too. I, I'd like to cast that aside. But that he does do transgressive relationships. It's something that Paul Thorne Sanderson throws in there in his network of movies. Uh, and they're sort of tangential to the atmosphere sometimes. And I think that's here, that's here again, something that we can't ignore. There's that, that there is a darker thread that runs through it. Yes, that's part and parcel. We have to sort of address that. I want to focus on the, the kind of alchemy and the charm of, of this thing as, as well. It seems like so much of this, Jason, rests on the casting. Two first-time actors, Alana Haim from the band Haim, plays Alana Kane. I say Haim, and I'm never sure if... Haim. I say that I'm Jewish, so I think I can say it's Haim, but I'm not, yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's correct because everyone else says Haim or Haim or Haim. I know they don't get it right, so I'm never sure if I'm right. We'll take you as the gospel on this. I think we'll go Haim. I think we'll go Haim. Haim to life. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, there's an amazing alchemy that, that Paul Thomas Anderson does here, an experienced director with these, first, these two first-time kind of debutant actors. That's a phenomenal thing. I mean, we've got no, we've got kind of no sort of back, backstory with those two together to kind of go off. But can you see how any of that was produced? I kind of feel like some of these scenes were just sort of let to run and run and see what happened. I don't know how, I'm sure they were expertly and minutely written, but they also seem like exercises in riffing. Can you see how that, that sort of amazing alchemy was kind of arrived at, Jason, with these two? Presumably he'd, he'd known Cooper Hoffman since he was born, the son of Philip yeah. Seymour Hoffman, who, of course, I, I wouldn't say he's made his debut, but he certainly was a discovery of Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, in, in Boogie Nights and Hard Eight and things like that. So he must have known this kid ha has it. And I think it's Simran mentions Gary Valentine's eagerness, his openness, his sort of relentless optimism and his sunny disposition, his refusal to be turned away, his relentless pitching, it has the keenness of the first timer about it. So I think that that energy is, has been very well harnessed. Alana, obviously a very seasoned performer. I mean, Haim have been together for many, many years and have done many tours. I've seen them here in the UK. They are great on stage and she does have her sisters with her in the family scenes. Uh, whether the, the gamble is, you know, can she 
she can she carry a movie because essentially it's it's about her face that's what remained with me alana's face mm-hmm. throughout this was just, and it's not a movie star's face it's a very ordinary face there's a casting agent she goes for a bit of casting who says oh you have sex appeal but a very jewish nose uh, <laughs> and it's a very strong thing we're talking about a hollywood where barbara streisand is also mentioned because of john peters played by bradley cooper in this and this jewish nose was a big thing in hollywood in the 70s should, should you keep the jewish nose uh, and it was becoming a you know uh, an ace up your sleeve <laughs> an ace, that's not the right place an ace on your face during that time so i think it, it's a very bold bit of casting there are moments where you where her naturalism and her untutored acting skills are, are come to the fore and are very very beneficial there's a lot of confusion on her face a lot of which way shall i go the simran mentioned her trying to work out her place in the world and i think that's what she's doing she's trying to work out her place in this world of the movies here she's like, what am i doing here half the time i shouldn't be here i'm used to playing guitar and being on stage and singing this is not my natural milieu and that uncomfortable out of water nature I think really, really works in her favour. Yeah, I love that. And and you mentioned, we, we've kind of touched on a couple of things there, Jason, that I wanted to come on to. The casting generally in the movie and some of the cameos that we kind of chuckled about in the introduction there. You mentioned the casting agent played by Harriet Handsome Harris. Love to Tatum. <laughs> so good. So many little references in there. It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, he says, you know, you look like an English pit bull dog and you've got this Jewish nose and it's very interesting. And I, I know she's transfixed with her, this super close up kind of cameo from, from Harriet Handsome Harris. Simran, what about some of the other casting? We talked about the Hyam family who play themselves amazingly brilliantly in this thing. The dad's, the dad's a genius. I'd have him in any film. Talk us through maybe some of the other uh, other cameos. We've got Tom Waits, Sean Penn, Bradley Cooper. Everyone kind of devours the set, don't they, in their cameos? Yeah, totally. And I think that's something that Paul Thomas Anderson has always done. He loves an ensemble cast and to create perfect little roles for actors. He's definitely an actor's director. And I think my favourite cameo is Bradley Cooper as John Peters, the sort of producer and partner of Barbara Streisand, as her name is correctly pronounced in the film. And he just plays this sort of cranky, leery, um, gross man, really, who flirts with women and shouts at men and stomps around in his white suit. And I love seeing Bradley Cooper in that comedic mode because so often he's sort of slotted into a more serious role, but we know he can do comedy from Silver Linings Playbook, for example, and seeing him kind of be a bit more flamboyant rather than go full serious Jackson Maine a la Star is Born. I, I really like seeing him in that playful kind of role. His star-making role was in The Hangover, wasn't it? And it, it reminded me of that, his John Peters. I, ha- yeah. I had forgotten that, actually. <laughs> I completely <laughs> forgot that The Hangover existed. But yeah, he's he's very funny in, in that film. And I also think Sean Penn is a, a brilliant piece of minor casting. He has a great sequence that I don't want to spoil, but as a lecherous, again, there's lots of lecherous men that are sort of hovering around Alana's life, which maybe is why she's so drawn to somebody a bit more innocent and somebody a bit more sweet like Gary as the older men that sort of present themselves to her, represent something a bit more threatening. But yeah, he orders her many martinis and then proceeds to do an incredible stunt that she leaves her sort of flat on her ass really so this is this mad scene that kind of comes out of nowhere in the in this in this restaurant which the 15 year old gary frequents like some old hollywood hand right this this sort of ivy-ish everyone's everyone's there in the canteen kind of restaurant 
And this mad motorbike stunt scene sort of comes out of nowhere. Sean Penn kind of clinging onto his days as a kind of action hero, I guess, and all the rest of it. It's it's absolutely mad, isn't it? He, and, he and, calls and Alana again, his it, Grace Kelly uh, and yeah. uh, cajoles her into performing a stunt with him, which she sort of accepts at first without really realising what she's gotten herself into, which is kind of her vibe the whole film. I wanted to talk about a little bit about this. This film seems to be so much about looking. The camera is obsessed with the characters. It's all around them. It's it's all it's this great sort of celebration of American suburbia, the warm Californian suburbia of the early 1970s. But it's obsessed with detail about looking at, at these characters, faces and motivations and all the rest of it. Um, how is that, Jason? How, I wonder how Paul Thomas Anderson kind of does that. It's, it's a very, his camera is very nosy. It's obsessed with, as we say, this, this wonderful um, cameo from Harriet Hanson Harris as the, as the uh, casting agent. The, the camera gets up close into people's faces, right into their spots and pimples. These are, uh, these are young kids, after all. Uh, uh, it's quite an unforgiving, despite it's an unforgiving kind of gaze, I suppose, the camera has. I, mean, I, I wondered at times if Licorice Pizza didn't refer to Gary's acne in the way yeah. that uh, Pizza Face yeah. in Greece is, <laughs> is referred to. So, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And it, the close-ups are great. There's one, uh, another cameo we haven't mentioned for John Michael Higgins, uh, who plays this sort of, I think he's, the, the, he's introducing sushi restaurants to the Valley. Again, it's slightly uncomfortable racist stereotyping but was probably fine in the 70s look we, we're a country that had love thy neighbor and jim davidson on the telly in, in the 70s we shouldn't be uh, insulting. He, and he, he sort of speaks japanese to his wife but it only does it in, in a english accent well no he speaks he speaks english in a fake japanese accent which is actually more offensive i was uncomfortable actually because i i've now watched the film twice and both times that moment sort of took me out from for a second um otherwise i, I kind of felt myself really immersed in the film. But that moment, it did kind of jar with me. We were talking about that that dark thread that, that runs through his work. There is an undercurrent always in Paul Thomas Anderson. And that might be what those close-ups you're asking me about, Rob, in the original question, mm. that might be what they're about. We're we come in very close. We come in microscopically close at times to watch these performers. And I think that that, when you then open it up into the, the more freewheeling episodes and the, the, the wind in the hair, the running through the streets, the coming together uh, moments, they make for a, an interesting patchwork of attention and release in the, in the storytelling and between the characters. And I think that's what he does so well. He's such an interesting filmmaker. So I think all of that kind of comes together. So the patchwork sometimes meanders. I... Personally, those cameos, the Tom Waits and the, the, the Sean Penn cameos, I'm not sure what they're adding myself. I thought they were a bit uh, extraneous, fun as they were. And the meandering John Peters one, I loved Bradley Cooper in it, but the bit where the, the, the truck freewheels and meanders literally as the plot is doing so. I was a bit, mm, where, where are we going with this? Like the characters who don't quite know where they're going, neither, neither did the film, neither did I. It's interesting, Jason, that you kind of pull out the truck driving scene as, as something that you felt was sort of extraneous to the plot. Whereas I, I mean, for me, that's my favourite sequence of the film. But I also just think, uh, as I sort of mentioned at the beginning, I, I feel like it's a series of, of anecdotes and stories. And this strikes me as something that just feels so incredible to be driving a truck backwards down a highway uh, and then sort of do a 360 turn and manage to sort of park the truck without having any gas in the tank. What an incredible feat. That must have happened. That feels totally ripped from a, a real life memory. Um, I, I really love that sequence. And you have 
the camera really close on Alana's face with this look of utter determination and concentration as we're not sure whether she's going to pull off this um, this kind of feat of driving or whether she's going to crash the car. And uh, it's totally uh, exhilarating. We were talking about looking earlier and I, I wanted to just pull out one part of the film that I think is really interesting. And it's the scene where um, Gary's waterbed business is sort of open for the first day and Alana is wearing a purple bikini, uh, greeting people and sort of advertising um, the shop. And we see her wearing this bikini and she sort of puts it on at the beginning of the sequence and she's all sort of confident and pleased with herself and feeling sexy. And then Gary encounters an, uh, an old school friend who's a girl who maybe he had a crush on or something's gone on with them. And she gets a little bit jealous and then she feels a bit embarrassed that she's wearing a bikini. And then she gets high and then um, she sort of starts making a fool of herself. And then she notices that Gary is kind of not paying attention to her anymore. And just watching her evolution uh, in that bikini scene, I think is so brilliant. And the way that the perspective changes throughout the sequence, I really love that. She ends up stomping home in the bikini and her dad greets her with a WTF when she arrives home. And uh, I, I think that, yeah, the way Paul Thomas Anderson's camera kind of looks and observes as kind of power dynamics change. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. And to reference that, there seems there is such a lot of work in this film, but it, it hides its light under such a sort of charming bushel. It's got such a lovely mellifluous quality of kind of anything can happen. And it's about kind of romance, I suppose, the romance of movies, the romance of romance. There is a lot of work in it, but it seems very effortless somehow to me. It's beautiful stuff and beautifully put Simran and Jason. So that was Licorice Pizza. But what did it make you guys think of? Simran, we're going to turn to you first. Um, you've chosen Adam Naiman's book about Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes. So the book is called Masterworks, and I believe it's published by Faber, um, by a film critic called Adam Naiman, who's based in Toronto, and he writes uh, a lot for The Ringer uh, and other publications. And he's a, a, a great film critic, a really thoughtful person. But what I like about this monograph, which is a big glossy coffee table book with loads of like gorgeous illustrations and stills is the way that he's organized the book so if anybody's kind of like more interested in Paul Thomas Anderson wants to kind of dig into his filmography more this is a really good place to start but typically in books that deal with film auteurs we kind of look at their careers in a sort of straight line so we, we look at their work chronologically but interestingly Adam Naiman's book is arranged by the chronology of the films. So we start before the 70s, we start with, with There Will Be Blood. We go through the different eras of America via their kind of the timelines in the films. And I think that's a very interesting way of kind of organising this auteur study and kind of look at the history of California as Paul Thomas Anderson has mapped it, a kind of psychogeography via his film filmography by his film texts um, it's a really fascinating book and it's a, a brilliant piece of, of film criticism um, it's quite accessible as well so I think you know if anybody wanted to learn more that'd be a really good has he got the new one in there Simran or has it come out before it came out in 2020 so um, it's before licorice pizza I'm sure there will be like a, a republished version soon with a with extra information I love the idea of telling the history of California from the mad oil man in There Will Be Blood, sucking up Eli's milkshake with his very long straw to licorice pizza. What? <laughs> it's an amazing conceit. I love the idea of that. And as you say, like it sounds like a sort of psychogeographic 
wonder work. It sounds amazing, actually. You have the sprawl of LA as, as kind of, you know, with the, the dawn of the new millennium in Magnolia as well and kind of... Um, all of that stuff as well. It's, it's really great. It's really worth reading. So that is Adam Naiman's, it's called Masterwork, and that is Adam Naiman's book about Paul Thomas Anderson. Jason, what about Licorice Pizza? You, you kind of, you wanted to sort of riff on Paul Thomas Anderson's other works, didn't you? Actually, the, the film made me think of, yes, Paul Thomas Anderson films, but other films that have that freewheeling nature to them. I often think that maybe Paul Thomas Anderson and Richard Dinklater vie as the great American auteurs. Uh, and there's a Richard Dinklater film called Everybody Wants Some, which is about the sort of mm-hmm. 1980s and a baseball team in high school that came to mind with lots of high socks and a great soundtrack. And one of the forgotten Dinklater films that was rather sweet and about memory in some way. But the one it made me think of most is almost famous, the Cameron Crowe movie, which has the innocent young Patrick Fujit playing this sort of rolling, the young journalist, seduced by the world of music with uh, Kate uh, Hudson's groupie uh, and then, you know, the whole, uh, the, the band that they end up with. And the sequence, I suppose, that, you know, the Tiny Dancer sequence, we're all on the plane and they all sing Tiny Dancer and they get away with this plane crash. That that came back to me a few times, watching these sequences that are put together here by Paul Thomas Anderson. And that's about a, a slightly transgressive relationship. And it slightly flips it because it's the music that Alana Heim is the music world come to the film world. And that was the, the film world gone to the music world in Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. So it, it's that that reminded me uh, of it. And I had a lightness of touch and a recreation of a period and era that sort of fade into the background and go into nostalgia, but still remain nevertheless dangerous and formative. Yeah. And, and as you say, the music, the soundtracks to those movies, Jason, as well, so sort of front and centre. And just as a final note on Licorice Pizza, unlike, say, you know, a handful of Tarantino films, which seem to, they use the soundtrack to get them slightly out of a plot hole, or you can feel that he's writing to the music almost. I felt with this that it, it was a, it kind of went hand in hand. It, there was a romance between what was on the screen and the soundtrack rather than one eating the other. Does that chime with, with either of you guys? Jason, did, did, the music didn't seem to, seem to be so much a piece of Licorice Pizza without devouring it somehow. It's not quite so... When, when Tarantino pulls one out and you think, oh, that's just a great choice. Well done, mate. You've crate dug there and you found a sort of B-side yeah. of Dave D. Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. Well done. Um <laughs> No, this one it didn't. It, it it does feel like the Paul Thomas Anderson vinyl collection has been sort of def- well and truly thumbed. I think with here that it's very much um, part of the fabric of it. They're not they're non diegetic. It's not like someone turns the radio on. Oh, and here we're hearing David Bowie, or we're hearing Clarence Carter's Patches, or Taj Mahal. The the choices are interesting. And as I mentioned, that Chico Freeman one, that, that Chico Hamilton track, they're very what might you might hear on on LA radio if you twist the dial and you're stuck on the freeway and you just go from the jazz station to the easy listening across to the rock and pop stations it feels like he's doing that whereas Tarantino it just feels very much like oh this is a sequence I can slip in a, a track that I've always wanted to do they're, they're, they're slightly different in their in their approach to, to the way they weave the music in this one's very they don't illustrate the they don't illustrate the scene but they augment it in some way whereas Tarantino I think they lead the scene something yeah yeah, no, it's been um, it's been rarely off the bound hi-fi over Christmas. Uh, it's it's a wonderful thing. Um, thank you both so very much. Um, that's all we have time for uh, this week. Licorice Pizza is out in cinemas now. It's the kind of film I felt as well that 
you definitely you, you have you you go and see it once as a warm up and then you just go and see it for pure pleasure um it, it's such a lovely thing um thank you to my guests Simran Hans and Jason Solomons and to my producer Sophie Monaghan Coombs and sound engineer Steph Chongu we'll be back at the same time next week but until then from me Robert Bound thanks for tuning in <laughs>